Welcome to the Sports Lodge, where sports, entertainment, and pop culture merge within the mind of your host, Roger Lodge. Hey, welcome into the Sports Lodge podcast, and my guest is a rock and roll Hall of Famer that Rolling Stone magazine just so happens to have on both its top 100 guitarists of all time list and its top 100 singers of all time list. He's also a member of the Songwriters Hall of Fame. The man has a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. You've enjoyed the hits for your entire life. Susie Q, Down on the Corner, Proud Mary, Up Around the Bend, Fortunate Son, which just so happens to be the name of his book. His music legend and Sports Lodge favorite, John Fogarty. John, thank you so much. How are you, my friend? Oh, man, I'm happy to be here. How you doing, Roger? I'm doing great. Great to hear your voice. Hey, so your journey is an amazing one, my friend. And I just mentioned your book, Fortunate Son, My Life, My Music. Now that the whole book process has come uh-huh. and gone, what did you learn most about yourself when you were putting down all those thoughts and feelings on paper? Wow, that's a big question. Um Number one, I sure was relieved to get it finished uh, because I really wanted to do a good job. I mean, I was bringing my A game to it, you might say. Uh, you know, I really wanted to, to carefully get it right because I didn't want to have to go back and do second and third editions where I correct all the mistakes. Um, and so I tried to be as thorough and, and factual uh, as I could be. So if anything, I guess... Um, I learned that about myself. I, I wanted to do it right once and not have to do it again. <laughs> when you read the entire book, you sat down, you read the book. Was there anything you said to yourself, oh, my God, I can't believe I forgot to put this in my book? Um, no. I mean, I, I actually read the book several times, not just once. That, that's what that process is. You know what's funny? Uh, and it's a you know a several year process when you you pick a co-writer and you you start to uh, get organized. You be, you pick a co-writer so that uh, it's actually a professional book. I was afraid that if I just meandered all by myself, you know. So the process was he would interview me and then all of that would get transcribed and I would read all that. And of course, that's uh, that's conversation. And then you got to sort of redo that and turn it into readable prose, if that makes any sense. Um, and you're going along and you realize you've, you've not quite nailed a certain story or whatever. And so you redo that so that it's clearer and, and um, it all makes sense. But as you go along, then artifacts start creeping in. The stuff that you did three years ago that you thought was done, now it gets somehow reproduced incorrectly you know little things start creeping in there like uh, little gremlins and you got to go back to the beginning and fix those along with um getting the new material correct it's it's a it's certainly a process um you know i'm not in a big hurry to write another book put it that way (laughs) john does making music today does making music make you as happy today than it did, say, 40 years ago? Um, yes. I know, uh, Roger, you probably know that I get up very early and practice guitar. And um, 
that I think is part of the secret for me, meaning there's, there's a lot of things I can do with the guitar now because I work so hard at it uh, that I couldn't do when I was young. You know, I, I had, I idolized people like James Burton and Chet Atkins and Scotty Moore, who was with Elvis. Um, and they were phenomenal. And along the way, there've been a few more guys playing, let's say kind of the country end of things like Brent Mason and uh, Brad Paisley, a friend of mine. Um, and, I could never do the stuff that they do, and I, I really wanted to be able to. I guess it's kind of like, you know, in baseball, you're eight years old and you're watching, you know, Willie Mays or or uh, Mike Trout, and uh, they can do these things, and you don't you want to do those, but you have no idea if you'll grow up and be able to do that. I mean, that's, uh, you know, it's sort of God's gift or not. Maybe you're more suited to be a teacher or something, but... Um, as a kid, I wanted to be able to play like the greats, the guitar players that I idolized. And during the CCR time, I really didn't have that technical ability. And through the years, I've really worked on it. So now, here in my 70s, I'm arriving at that plateau, and I'm just getting the hugest kick out of it. Um, it makes me feel like a kid. It's, it's really fun, and therefore it makes me want to run into the studio and record something. John, you have no idea how many times I have told that story over the years about Rock and Roll Hall of Famer and music legend John Fogarty getting up at 6 o'clock in the morning and go, because and you, and you told me that you do it very early in the morning because your wife Julie and the kids were still asleep. You didn't feel guilty about missing out on quality time with them, and you would go into your home studio very early play the guitar and the reason you gave me for that was the simplicity of it was the brilliance of it because you just wanted to get better so for the folks who didn't hear it the first time around why does a rock and roll hall of famer a multi-grammy award winner still need to do that is the answer still the same because simply you want to get better yeah absolutely um i mean i think Somehow, intuitively, I knew that if I didn't keep getting better, I was probably going to start sliding backwards. Um, you know, during there was sort of a, a big hole in the middle of my career where, I, where you didn't hear from me. Uh, there were a lot of legal shenanigans and all that. And that was a time when I uh, didn't necessarily feel very good about life in general, let's say. And I, I certainly wasn't practicing then. And so I was kind of disconnected, you know, that it's all kind of, um, it's all, it all feeds on itself. And so when you're disconnected, that, that inertia kind of keeps you that way. But if you get busy and start, you know, digging in the trenches and trying to get better, eventually that spills into the rest of your life where you, you kind of have that joy of being alive and you're curious and interested and engaged and these are all really healthy and good things. So uh, I'm keeping that going because I think, you know, for me, that's that's what makes it all work. I, I know at some point, I think Bob Dylan said, if you're not busy being born, you're busy dying or something like that. <laughs> all you fanatics, forgive my uh, paraphrasing. Hey, you mentioned some of the great guitar players that you looked up to, the Dwayne Eddies of the world, Chet Atkins, James Burton, and that aggressive style of his that appealed to you. Coming up, 
Did, did you want to be like anybody in particular? Or was it like like me as an actor going to this acting class, going to that acting class, and taking a little bit from this guy and a little bit from that guy and turning it into you? Is that the way? Was that your approach? Well, yes, but I, I can't say it was all thought out like that. I mean, obviously, uh, I loved Elvis Presley, uh, especially at the beginning. I mean, that was it was just remarkable. It was like a rocket ship taking off. And uh, you might say he was the, the kind of the focal point. But even before Elvis appeared, you know, I was listening to rhythm and blues guys um, like Fats Domino. And believe it or not, James Brown had a hit way, way back then called Please, Please, Please. Uh, Jimmy Reed was around. These were mostly R&B guys. And then Elvis came along and he was kind of taking that music and making it even wilder. And, uh, of course, that's a description of rock and roll. Um, and there were guys behind Elvis or around that time, like Carl Perkins, that had a little bit more country in them. Uh, if, I'd, if I'd been an, aware, I would have known about Hank Williams, but he was a little bit before my awareness time. Although I heard a couple of the songs like Jambalaya. I didn't quite know who he was, but, I mean, Hank Williams was amazing. Uh, of course, they always put him in the country um, department, I guess you'd say. Uh, but I was a guy whose records were very intense. So I, w- I was listening, especially to guitar. I loved guitar, anything with guitar on it. And, uh, you know, it was usually way beyond me, But I, I and I didn't have the equipment that would sound like that anyway. But in my mind, I could kind of hear myself, you know, uh, you, you kind of fantasize it and even though there's a many-year gap between what you're doing and this record you're listening to, you think it's just around the corner. So that's what keeps you going. And those names that you brought up, Dwayne Eddy, Chet Atkins, and some of those guys, when you when you talk about the greatest guitar players of all time and they put together these lists, of course we always see names like Hendrix and Clapton. John Fogarty, give me, in your opinion, Uh, One of the most underrated guitar players of all time. Doesn't get the credit he deserves, but you consider him to be an all-time great. Uh, There's probably a few of those. I know Carl Perkins was an amazing guitar player. I'll tell you a little story. I I got to record a song with Carl uh, in the mid-90s. He was doing an album and had a lot of guest stars. And at some point I heard about it and I... I almost begged my way onto the <laughs> record. You know, I had run into him, and I think he casually mentioned he was working with Tom Petty, and uh, there was a famous studio out in the valley called, uh, gosh, what is that called? Uh, Stu- what is that place called? Um, Dave Grohl did a special about that studio. But uh, anyway, when I heard that Carl was making a record, I kind of said, well, Gosh, Carl, I'd love to, you know, do a song with you. And I had always talked about Carl's version of a song called All All Mama's Children. It was the other side of his follow-up to Blue Suede Shoes. That was called Boppin' the Blues. And the other side was All All Mama's Children. And I just loved that record. So Carl and I uh, came came up with, you know, yeah, let's do that, because it was kind of obscure, but I, I just loved it. So at some point, uh, I was out of the room, and I came back into the room. Carl's sitting there with his Strat, Fender Stratocaster, 
And he's playing the meanest, dirtiest rock and roll. I mean, really good. Really, you know, top shelf. Now, Carl had already had a heart attack. He was about 64 years old. Uh, they had done, you know, what the open heart bypass and all that stuff. And he was kind of a miracle of medicine. Um, and, I, you know, we were all glad he was still with us. But he was a bit fragile, you might say. It certainly didn't. He wasn't stomping around like a young Jerry Lee Lewis, if you know what I mean. Um, and so his manner was a bit reserved. I think he was always a gentleman anyway. But I come back into the room, and he's just wailing on the guitar and just killing it, you know. And I, I, it, I was just shocked. I was shocked that it was so mean and, and wild-sounding and also really, really good. And I'm staring at him, and then I go, well, of course. This guy was part of the invention of rock and roll guitar. I mean, in, in some ways, he's the reason I'm playing guitar, because way back in 1956, with blue suede shoes, he was so good. That's what I wanted to do, and so uh, you know, it's one of those remarkable stories where you haven't thought about him here in the present that way. But when I realized what he, who, and what he really was, and his influence on everybody that plays rock and roll, um, then it all it all became. I think they call those an aha moment. You know. Absolutely. Hey, John, you know, every time we have a conversation, it's just amazing the names that you bring up and the names you've interacted uh, with over the years. Who, who's the person that maybe it was after a Creedence show or even uh, during your solo career that they wanted to come backstage after a show and meet you and you were absolutely blown away because that person wanted to come backstage and shake hands with John Fogarty? Um, I think the one that really sort of, I, I, I just, how can I say it? Even though I had met him before, um, I was sitting in the front row at the Grammys several years ago when it was here in Los Angeles, uh, and Tom Hanks sat down next to me. Uh, and I had, I had met him before, believe it or not, I think at a birthday party for Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> you know, I'm dropping all these names, but... Um, yeah, I'm, I'm a huge uh, fan. You know, I was kind of gawking at Tom Hanks. And he sits down next to me, and he's just kind of chatting. You know, we're all kind of duded up in uh, Grammy TV clothes, you know. And here's this acting legend, you know, sort of our a persona of uh, America uh, sitting right here. And he says something like, well, I really like your new album. And I, I was stunned. I, I, I said something like, I mean, I couldn't believe it, right? And I said, uh you bought my album? <laughs> <laughs> you know? And, I mean, I just couldn't believe that. And he, he just looks at me like he doesn't believe me because I'm so, I'm being really deferential. Like he's Mount Rushmore, you know? And I, I mean, he's, I'm sure inside a normal guy, just like he portrays on, on the screen, but I just couldn't believe it. It's like Babe Ruth saying that or something. And so I, I said, you bought my album, you know, like in disbelief. And Tom says, John, I'm a fan. You know, there's a lot of insight in that. I mean, I'm not trying to say that to brag. It's more like um, you, you, sometimes you have to come down, back down to earth, you know, and just sort of be normal. <laughs> hey, Tom Hanks is like the rest of us, my friend, all huge fans of your music. And let me, let me go back to how this all kind of got underway. I think you're around 12 years old when you and your buddies start your first band. Shout out to the Blue Velvets. You're rocking Portula Junior High School, doing covers like Rebel Rouser by Dwayne Eddy. You're doing songs by The Ventures. Do I have that right? Is that how all this kind of got started for you? 
Yeah, absolutely. It was Portola Junior High School in El Cerrito. And uh, I was there in seventh and eighth grade. Um, and I met two of my bandmates from that became Credence eventually. Uh, Doug Clifford was is the drummer. And Stu Cook, who ended up playing bass for CCR. And, of course, my brother Tom was rhythm guitar. And he, he I had already met him. <laughs> right. And eventually it all came together, but that was a long journey, circuitous, circuitous, I guess you'd say, you know, meeting each other in the eighth grade was the start, but it meandered and meandered through the years uh, going off, and, you know, sometimes those things stay connected, and and most of the times, really, they don't stay connected, and uh, you end up doing other things in life, and somehow I was lucky enough uh, that these were the people I had met when I was quite young, um, and it ended up, you know, with uh, a lot of uh, help from God and a lot of hard work and practice, it ended up being Creedence Clearwater Revival and uh, eventually number one in the world. Before Creedence, before you were number one in the world, break it down for me, John Fogarty. Which band was better, the Blue Velvets or the Gollywogs? Oh, well... Uh, there's, you'd have to qualify what does better mean. Um, <laughs> musically, you know, as far as musicians, we could play better when we were gollywogs. Um, but, you know, there, there was sort of a direction happening. It was sort of a, a, a model had been forced on us by the record company. When we walked in there, we were still the Blue Velvets. And when the, the first single came out, which is, you know, Quite, quite some time after we had first tried to, oh, when we first walked in the door of the record company, um, the, the, rec, the single came out, and on the label it said Gollywogs. They had renamed us and were trying to reshape us into, the, into their image. <clears throat> this was 1964, and basically, and these were old jazz guys. <laughs> and so... You know, well, those those Beatles are very successful. <laughs> Let's try and have a group that's like the Beatles. Um, I don't know what they were thinking. But anyway, they named us Gollywogs, thinking that that would somehow make us more British and more uh, mod. I think they used that word one time. Um, and so that that's kind of a false uh, avenue, a false tangent. You know, uh, so I don't know if that was better. We could, we could play better, but I don't think the music was, or I don't think the, the absolute heart of it was the correct place to be. <laughs> hey, John, can you, you know, t- in a way, I want to say sometimes, uh, even in popular music like rock and roll, it got off into things that some people call prog rock and a lot of other, or fusion. And, you know, those, those aren't areas I'm a big fan of were a little um, taint. I'm sure the people in those are quite happy, but, you know, again, I I would think that was uh, the wrong direction, certainly for me. So in some ways, the the Blue Velvets were were better in the sense they were much more honest and and at the heart of uh, rock and roll. John, tell me the story about a song called Bulldog by the Fireballs, that you heard on the way to one of your Blue Velvet's first live shows, 
for a local El Cerrito sock hop, and that song meant so much to you. Tell us why. It's amazing. Um, now, you know, we were, uh, we were in the ninth grade, and we were getting to go back to our former school and play a sock hop, which was after hours, you know, right after school let out. Um, and so, and by the way, this had been arranged by Mrs. Stark, who had been my music teacher at Port Law, and a wonderful teacher and a wonderful person who, um, what's the word, encouraged my musical uh, career and, and, you know, aspirations, that sort of thing. And this was one way she was helping. Um, so we worked up the, the few instrumentals that we knew. And then on, in the car on the way over to Portola, we heard Bulldog being played on the radio. And for some reason, I mean, this, I don't think this ever happened again in my life. Where, but again, I'm in the ninth grade. I'm at, I'm at that level of musicianship. And I hear this cool new song on the radio. It's an instrumental called Bulldog. And uh, I knew exactly how it went. And I'm listening to it, and it was so cool. I said, you know what? Well, I said it to myself. I don't think I divulged it out loud, but it, I was so impressed with it. We were all in the car together. We got to the uh, to the venue, you might say, our junior high. We set up the the instruments, and I said, "Guys, I want to play that song we just heard." And I knew <laughs> exactly what key it was in. You know how I should play the guitar. I let Doug and Stu know how to, you know, what their backing part would be on the instrument, and we played that song. Um, with one rehearsal right there at that sock hop. And, you know, I don't know that I've ever had that sort of uh, confidence and also the freedom to just sort of fly like that, uh, even since, to where you're trying something that's totally untested. You have such an amazing, you know, ear for music and the talent is, you know, without question, uh, you're one of the most talented guys ever. How much of it was God, <laughs> how much... Is it God gift and how much of it is hard work? I think there's a lot of things in life that um, parallel this, you know, what, what happened to me. Um, certainly athletics and I'm sure um, making speeches or even being a teacher or uh, certain, uh, certainly in all the arts like painting and poetry and all that sort of thing. And you realize you have, a, as a, at a young age, you, you have a love for it, for it. You're attracted to it. I mean, you, you really can't go anywhere else. You're just so attracted. You just, and when you're young, you just go to it without even thinking. I mean, you, there's no, how, how can I say it? There's no hesitation. You're just drawn because you want to know more. Um, and you don't, you don't even stop to think that it's weird, you, you know, because to you, it, you're not even thinking like that. You're just drawn. And so then, uh, you love it so much because there's always this sort of reward in your heart. You just always feel good while you're uh, pursuing it. You, you just want to know, and you're so curious, and you're driven to find out more. So that is your fuel. That's the thing that you get your energy from to then try harder, because at some point you realize you're not very good, but when you're young, you also know that that's okay. I, I mean, you know it instinctively without even um, stopping to to analyze it. You know, I dare say if you're a, a young kid and you're drawn to basketball, um, and you know, and you're four feet tall, 
and uh, you know, uh, Kobe is six foot ten, I believe. <laughs> and you're just drawn to this sport, and and there's eleven. And you don't even stop to worry that, well, gosh, what if I don't grow up and I'm six foot ten? You know, you just go because you're drawn and you keep working on that. Um, and that's what I did. I, I think after the initial gift, the talent that God gives you, then you have to spend the time working at it. And that, I think that's where the that's where the reward really comes. As you work harder, you get better. You feel even better about the journey, and that sort of gives you more energy and more fuel to keep going. I always wanted to be the the uh, Johnny Carson of sports, and nobody was going to tell me I couldn't do it. I didn't listen to the outside outside noise, including my mother, who to this day, John, always says, are you sure you don't want to go back and get those 16 units from Whittier College and get your degree? I guess my question is, were there a lot of people when you were young, up and coming, who told you you couldn't do it? And what motivated you just to keep grinding? Wow. Um, well, my mother was supportive, but I think she also was sort of cautionary. I know, I know that, well, I love history. I'm a history buff, you might say. And um, I envision myself, if, if this doesn't work out, well, I'd love to be a history teacher. Um, and so I would kind of, you know, like if I'm filling out a little form in the seventh grade or whatever, I would write down history teacher because I just knew instinctively if I wrote down musician, everybody's going to say, um, that's a little flaky. Okay. You know, cause we didn't really have many examples, um, in culture of, things where it really worked out. I guess you could point to someone like Louis Armstrong, maybe, or uh, Duke Ellington, or who was the guy? Van Cliburn, who played piano and uh, kind of was a, an American virtuoso in the 50s and 60s, uh, at a very young age, I guess. Um, but I knew if I said musician, you know, people would just kind of chuckle. I mean, the older people, and I was, you know, 14, and I, I didn't want to get chuckled at. And so it's like, here I am playing guitar, but oh, okay, I'll be a history teacher. And then, then, there was, then it quieted them down. Uh, and that stuff keeps happening, you know. Um, Susie Q was out. It was 1968. And so Creedence got uh, called to be playing at the Avalon Ballroom in San Francisco, which was another venue like the Fillmore. And... Um, it was our very first time at a at a big place like that. We considered those the you know that was the that was ground zero. That was where we wanted to be, um, and so we were getting to play at this show. But there were many bands. There might have been seven bands. So many bands, um, and so all the other bands have done their sound check in the afternoon, and we don't get to do our sound check until just before the doors are going to open, which is. The doors will open probably at 7, something like that. And so it's like 6 or a quarter after 6, and we're doing a sound check. And suddenly, uh, of course, I was very driven, and I'm trying to catch whatever music I can catch to to further my band's career, you know, uh, just to keep keep things getting better and kind of move up the ladder. So suddenly, right in the middle of this sound check, I get 
completely inspired. My guitar is is in the vibrato mode, so it's making that warbly sound. And it's, I'm playing this E seventh chord on the guitar, my my old Rickenbacker. And I, I suddenly am going, wow, wow, that sounds so good. Hey guys, start playing this. And I'm telling Doug, you know, just play this beat. Uh, Stu, play this on the bass. You know, just just write it in the key of E. And I start singing out these law, lo- these uh, what's the word in in what's the word uh, undiscernible vowels and sounds coming out of my mouth, just <laughs> nonsense, but percussive and kind of making an, a rock and roll aggressive noise. And I'm singing and I'm wailing, and you know, this song eventually is what became Born on the Bayou. And that was exactly where it started, right there. So we're, you know, I'm having a good time for about a minute. It's, oh, this is so good. This feels great. And suddenly, boom, dead silence. And the stage manager has pulled the plug out of my uh, amplifier. It just shut me down like that, you know, and I, I was, it was such a violent kind of, you know, um, thing to do. I mean, it was just like, he might as well punched me right in the gut. I'm looking at him like, why did you do that? He says, well, you got to stop. You know, we got a show to start. You know, and I'm kind of like, you know, this all happens in a nanosecond. We got a show to start. And besides, you're not going anywhere anyhow. You know, and I looked at him. I mean, it was like, he didn't have to add that, right? You're not going anywhere because we were seventh on the bill. We were going to be the first ones to play when they opened the door, you know, far, far away from the headliner who would go on maybe at 10 o'clock. So he says, you're not going anywhere anyway. And I looked at him and I said, oh, yeah, I'll tell you what, buddy, give me one year and I'll show you who's not going anywhere. And it's it's remarkable that that moment got to happen because Exactly about a year later, we're headlining at the Fillmore, which was much more prestigious, playing four nights at the Fillmore and getting three, four encores every single night. I mean, we literally played, I think, 16 encores that weekend (laughs) that we were at the Fillmore. And we were, you know, by then, Proud Mary was number one and uh, maybe Bad Moon was out by then. And we were on top of the world, and it literally happened, exactly like I said. But that was a a moment as close to actually making it where people were still kind of, you know, saying, nah, it's never going to happen for you. You're not going where. How long did those words ring in your head, John? They still do. And it's funny, there's a a baseball context. Um, Years and years ago... I was watching, it was, I think it was current at the time, it was Earl Weaver managing his team, and he's, in the, he's right near the end of the season. Uh, somehow they're mic'd up, and Earl Weaver was a pretty volatile manager, pretty, uh, you know, he, was, he would get in an umpire's face. Sure. And he's arguing about something, somebody being uh, safe or, you know, whatever. You didn't argue balls and strikes or you were out of the game. Um, and Earl did get tossed many times. That was, <laughs> I think, part of his, his, part of his uh, psychological motivation for the team, you know. But at some point, that, that umpire says to him, Earl, you're not going anywhere anyway. <laughs> and I looked at those words, and I went, oh, my God. You know, that's all you got to say to somebody that's competitive, because now we're going. 
And by the way, when Susie Q started showing up everywhere, including Apocalypse Now, I mean, what what was that like for you guys uh, years later to see Susie Q showing up in one of the most famous movies in the history of cinema? Well, it's such a, a feather in your cap. I mean, it, it really is a proud moment uh, for the people that recorded that song and made that record because, you know, at the time when you're doing things, um, I dare say even the Beatles didn't quite really understand how great it was what they were doing, you know, and being so massively popular. Um, certainly I didn't feel that way. I, I didn't realize at all uh, the impact that the, the music of Credence was having. You know, I mean, now I realize that, uh, that those records, those songs are famous all over the world. I mean, I dare say you could probably go up the Amazon find a, a you know a far out almost untouched tribe of people and they would know proud mary um it's just you know you just don't realize that while you're in the middle of it and i guess you could thank that cat named tom donahue who played your demo tape on his station on some underground station somewhere right isn't that what got Susie q rolling that's exactly right. Uh, yeah, thanks for asking about that, Roger. Um, uh, let's see. I got out of the Army, or, or off of active duty at least, um, right in the middle of the summer of 1967 in San Francisco. That was the so-called Summer of Love. And um, the scene in San Francisco was, was in full gear. Uh, bands like the Grateful Dead and the Airplane were Jefferson Airplane, were around, a Quicksilver Messenger Service, and a bunch more. Um, and we were still fledgling, uh, ha- had been gollywogs, but we were sort of uh, casting that away. We wanted to start over. And the, the, there was this local radio station called KMPX. And I don't know that they called themselves underground, but they were the world's first underground station they were on fm radio which is quite different than you know up until then top 40 it was always am and and the music that i wanted to listen to rock and roll and so here was this station um with these sort of hipster kind of djs like tom donahue and there's another guy named tony pig and several more uh really cool and knowledgeable uh djs young people for the most part that really loved rock and roll had grown up um, through the rock and roll era, and they were sort of branching out. They were, it, it, I, I would say rock and roll was still the core of what they played, but they were allowed to be kind of free form. And so uh, the DJs, especially Tom Donahue, I mean, they, they had an uh, inert or innate sense of what was cool, but they would also embellish that with other things. I know there was one guy that sometimes would play these uh, chants. I don't know if it was Gregorian or Trappist Monk or what. You know, it was just way off the chart from a, from a top 40 station, but it was kind of interesting, you know, as long as you just kind of played a little bit of that. Um, and there was, you really didn't hear much of the real syrupy pop stuff uh, that I would say kind of came from, let's say, the Partridge family or something like that. That was probably considered not cool. You know? <laughs> right. So, But they would play a lot of the stuff like from Stax, a lot of soul music, uh, some gospel music, sometimes a little country western, but I think country western for those guys 
uh, was considered uh, not cool, although I, I had many people that I loved that I, you know, I still think it is cool. Um, once in a while, they would play, well, I know I heard Merle Haggard uh, from one of the DJs on that station, so they were, you know, they were pretty um, far-reaching and influential, but again, this is a small radio station with kind of local advertising. It, it, they weren't really getting, I guess, what you call big accounts yet. But every once in a while, the DJ would play a tape that wasn't even a released record. And the most famous one was uh, a tape of Janis Joplin with Yorma uh, playing guitar, Yorma from the airplane playing guitar. It was a song called Hesitation Blues. It had been recorded in somebody's apartment, and you can hear someone typing in the background, I think they were doing their term paper or something, <laughs> and so Janice is singing, and and it was really a cool version, and they would play that uh, enough that everybody knew what that was, and so among our band, we kind of developed the idea of well, maybe maybe we can make a kind of a end run around all the machinery of music. And the music business, you know, where you have to go make a record, and you have to rehearse, and you have to then get it released and publicized and blah, blah, blah. And, it, you know, all that tough stuff takes a long time. And this is a way to actually get straight to the uh, airways and not have to do all that stuff, you know, which much like what young people can do now with uh, the digital and the social media uh wave but anyway um so i determined that you know what they've been making the record company had been making us do original material because they wanted to own it of course <laughs> so i said let's not do that let's pick a song we already know is great and hopefully i'm going to pick one with a great guitar lick that i love to do so obviously i went right back to james burton and uh Susie q and because I already knew it was a great song and a great guitar thing, and I said, "Let's let's work on this." And I kept kind of tricking it up to be exactly the place that was going to play it. You know, let's make it psychedelic and groovy, and you know, and so there's a bunch of stuff in there. Number one, it's a jam, meaning it's longer than two minutes, um, and that was the whole idea to kind of create it and arrange it exactly for the audience that we were aiming at. And lo and behold, we, you know, we went over there with a tape that was, I think, 8 minutes and 11 seconds long, and Tom loved it and started playing it. And, you know, I think each DJ would play it on his show at least once because they all liked it. Um, so that station was playing the complete version of Susie Q maybe eight times a day or maybe even more every day. Uh, before there was a, a record of it, be, certainly before there was an album. And this sort of kicked our record company in the pants. It kind of said, see, these guys are worthy. You know, you should you should get them to make a whole album, which is what we got to do. And uh, that that was the way that we sort of went around all the usual trappings of the music biz. So that's when the pressure really started, because I'm sure all your friends and fans were basking in the glory of Suzy Q. But meanwhile, you're feeling pressure because the last thing you want to be is like, you know, the Trogs, a one-hit wonder who brought us Wild Thing, or the Archies with Sugar Sugar. I mean, this is when it really got serious, right? 
Absolutely. Um, Susie Q crossed over, you know, they finally made a single of it. Um, and it, it turned out that Susie Q was too long, so we kind of cut it in half. And uh, side one is, you know, the first part, and then you roll over to side two is the second part. Kind of like Honky Tonk, parts one and two, you know. Right. Uh, and so that that crosses over onto AM radio. And I re- I'll never forget the first time I heard it on, you know, a top 40 station. And I remember the, the DJ says something like, oh, man, I love that good old country picking on that guitar. And I, I mean, I'm, you know, I, I never had quite considered myself that for sure. I was just a, a young, very young musician trying to get by. And that gave me such a, uh, a feeling of, of happiness inside, a glow. I, I don't know how else to describe it. I mean, I, I'm not sure I believed it was true, but at least that guy thought it was true. I mean, in other words, he was sort of putting me alongside my idols, uh, many of which were the great pickers down in Nashville who could, you know, really play the guitar. Um, and just for that moment, it was like I was, there I was. I enjoyed that for about, I don't know, a minute and a half, and I realized, Wow, Susie Q's going to be on the AM radio. This is cool. And immediately my own, oh, what's the word? My own uh, discipline and uh, responsibility kicked in, and I said, oh, my God, this thing's on its way, and I don't have anything to follow it. I don't have any more. And that certainly sent me to, set me to thinking about, you know, what do we do? What, what's the next thing we can release? And I kind of thought that really nothing was ready on that first album uh, to release. And so I got busy writing songs, you know, and staying up late at night. And just And it was more mental, really, than having a guitar in my hands. Um, and the, the reason was I could see that Suzy Q was kind of a novelty. You know, it, it, I had done it on purpose, of course, and it, it managed to get through the very tough wall, you might say, on the other side of which is Top 40 AM radio. That's kind of the toughest game in town, you might say. And, you know, that's the AAA division of athletics. And, uh, excuse me, I'm saying it the wrong. Uh, First division is what I mean to say. And um, I I was scared. I, I realized it was a novelty, just like, let's say, Witch Doctor or Purple People Eater, you know, all the other sort of one-hit things. I said, God, I'm going to be a one-hit wonder. And the idea being the spotlight is on me right now, and if I have something to follow it up, great. They're going to shine the light on that. But if there's nothing there or if it's unworthy, they're just going to go, huh, okay, next, and they just (laughs) move on. And I've seen it happen a million times, even with people I liked, you know. And so... That scared me to death. I really, I really said, I don't want to be a one-hit wonder. And so that same, let's say, discipline and fire that had gotten me going from the time I was a little kid, every time I met some sort of um, pushback, to all the way to when that guy at the Avalon Ballroom on stage had said, you're not going anywhere. This was that same sort of uh, kick in the pants is telling me, John, Whatever it is you've been saying you're going to do, now is when you have to do it. You have to do it right now. 
you may not get another chance. Oh man, was that that's like standing on the I don't know on a tight wire, I guess. <laughs> you know, one side is failure and the other side is success. John Fogarty, tell me about the first time you're in your car, you're driving somewhere, and you hear your music on the radio for the very first time. Wow, I'm I'm trying to remember what that might have been. It was probably Susie Q. Um, it would have been well. I don't know. I, I it might have been on KMPX. Or it might have been uh, when it went top 40. All I know is um, it sounded so great. I mean, what happens is you, you sort of go into a little, I don't know what you call that. It, it, it's sort of a, it's a space that's kind of sublime. I mean, you you know, and you, you it's like hypnotic. It's a trance. There you go. Uh, and I'm driving along. It's a wonder I didn't, you know, hit a parked car or something because it it really is overwhelming. And of course, it's long before cell phones and the age of social media, which can be very trance-like to people. Um, I just know that I was supremely happy. And then I, of course, started. It, it's like the beauty queen who has already been named this, you know, whatever Miss Emeryville or something. Uh, but she's got this little beauty mark, you know, on the side of her chin. Or, and so she's looking at herself, and all she can see is that little mark. And that's kind of what I was, oh, my God, what's the matter with this record? Where's the, where's the bad part? I've got to hear, you know, I, it's some sort of paranoia uh, that that just starts gnawing at you and you because it's pushing you to be better. John, give me this song that you wrote, and you didn't think it was all that great, but it skyrocketed. Oh, um, well, it isn't quite true that way. Um, the opposite of that would be the day that I wrote Proud Mary. I mean, I, you know, I had never really written a great song before, and I, I can, I'm making a line between good and great. Uh, you know, in high school, I'd written a couple of, eh, you might say, good songs. They certainly didn't skyrocket. Um, but I was in, with Proud Mary, it went the opposite way. I was, was still way under the radar, you know, still just playing in a little bar here and there, that sort of thing. And when Proud Mary happened, um, I was standing there or sitting there with my little pad looking at the words and, and literally shaking. You know, uh, sometimes I use the word quaking, but that's such an old word. I don't know if anybody knows what that means. Um, I was I I was trembling uncontrollably almost because I knew it was a great song. I mean, I I studied the lives of certainly Lennon and McCartney and Lieber and Stoller, a lot of rock and roll people, but also some of the old legends from my mom's time, like Irving Berlin and Hoagy Carmichael. You know, because with my mom, I watched a couple of old movies on TV, that sort of thing. And and it's a lot of times they'll talk about the moment when they, you know, because they're already acknowledged as great songwriters. And here I was with something that I, I could tell was really great. Uh, so that's the opposite of the story uh, you asked about. But I, I then knew, now Proud Mary's a hit, and there's a whole album that it was on, but I put 
the second best song or the other great song from that album on the other side of Proud Mary, Born on the Bayou, because I just wanted to give everybody the best music that I had and my band had right away, you know, like the Beatles. The Beatles always, there was no B-side. Both sides were A-sides. Uh, back in Elvis's time, many of his singles were like that, that had the A and, well, the two sides were both really A-list songs, like Hound Dog and Don't Be Cruel. Um, and I wanted to do that. That was my desire. I just thought that was, that was the bar I was reaching for, I guess. And so I now looked at um, what was out, when, it, when Proud Mary came out with Born on the Bayou on the other side, and I sort of assessed and determined that that album really didn't have another track that was as good as those two to come out next. So I had to now create some new music. Uh, you might say without an album yet, it was just a single. Of course, that was how we did it in those days. You just you know, release singles as soon as you had one ready and when the time was right. So uh, I was I got very busy and and managed to create two new songs. One was Born on the Bayou, excuse me, <laughs> space there. One was Bad Moon Rising, and the other side was Lodi, and they were both uh, kind of new narratives for me. Um, Lodi was kind of this fictional story about a musician who'd been at the top and now was way on the other side of his career. Uh, I, I pictured at the time, you know, probably a country guy, but who knows? I don't really say so. And Bad Moon Rising had been inspired for me by an old movie that was called The Devil and Daniel Webster. Basically, uh, the scene in the movie where uh, a big hurricane, uh, you know, uh, natural disaster happens and the whole countryside is destroyed, except that our our main character has made a deal with the devil <laughs> to, at the end of his life, give up his soul to the devil in return for success in his life now. And so after this natural disaster, he gets up in the morning, walks out of his barn where he's been cowering all night from the storm, and everybody else's property is destroyed, and he looks out at his field and the crops are straight up. Um, so that's kind of what Bad Moon Rising was about. But I know that as Proud, Proud Mary was now coming down the church, you might say, kind of making its way to the its final run, and Bad Moon was just being released, and I trembled. I, I said to the guys in my band, I think I've made two B-sides. You know, I, I really couldn't give myself... Uh, the confidence or the love to say, it's okay, John. <laughs> you know? And I worried that it was going to be nothing and that we would flop. Um, and so in that case, you might say that they then took off and everything was okay. And I, I really did have my doubts. I, I was worried about it because, you know, Proud Mary was the first big success. And in a way, how can you ever follow up Proud Mary? John Fogarty, I can't tell you how much I appreciate the stories and the time, but before you leave me, let's do a quick lightning round. I'm going to throw some things at you. Give me 15 seconds or less. Tell me about the first time you ever met Bruce Springsteen. Oh, I met him on stage at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in New York City, and um, I was just in awe. 
You know, it was hard for me to be normal. Um, I was just seeing a guy who was at the top of Mount Rushmore, and his career was white hot at the moment. And uh, even though he was a you know really nice guy, um, I just was in awe. I could hardly speak, and um, that certainly uh, made a you know. Uh, happily, we've become friends, and he really is truly a great guy. But I couldn't at that moment. I couldn't get over all the the things he had done. Did you ever meet Elvis? No, I never did meet Elvis. Paul McCartney. Yes, I've met Paul. Delightful chap, you might say. Uh, very down to earth uh, and a great musician. What do you remember most about Ed Sullivan? Um, well, that's a legendary person uh, when we met him and were first on his show. Um, I think the thing that that I guess I was really struck with is that he seemed to really get a kick out of Credence. He, he, you know, it was first blush. He, he would have a rock band on all the time on his show, but he seemed to truly just be down to earth and getting a kick out of the fact that we were uh, so bonded together. Okay, before you leave me, you have to confirm something or deny something. It's an argument between me and my former roommate, a guy you know well, Uncle Jesse from Full House, John Stamos. So let me take you back. You have a party at your home when you were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. It was a big celebration party. Your wife, Julie, who uh, I just absolutely adore and has been such a good friend over the years, Julie invited John and I to come to your party that night you played music in your living room Bruce Springsteen was part of it I swear I swear and will take it to my grave that Don Henley was part of that Stamos says no way I have video of it Henley wasn't there John Fogarty was Don Henley there that night um you know what Roger what you're doing is combining two different parties Okay. <laughs> the, the the big party where I played music yes. and and Bruce came. That was a surprise birthday party that my wife threw for me for my fiftieth birthday. It was in the, the the other event was in the same house. Um, the other event was actually before, and Don Henley was there. It was uh, 1993 when Creedence got inducted into the. Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and Don Henley came to that, and several other people came to that, but I didn't perform. Um, and then the, the big party, the big bash you're talking about was about two years later in 1995, my wife threw a surprise 50th birthday party, um, and it was, you know, that was a great big event. There were a whole bunch of people uh, some of which I, you know, was seeing recently, and uh, many that I maybe hadn't seen for some time, and that was certainly a memorable. I've always told her, you know, you never have to throw me another birthday party. <laughs> you, you did it, honey. We're done. It's great. <laughs> well, I appreciate you clearing that up, and I know you're John Fogerty, rock and roll legend and Hall of Famer. But to me, my friend, you will always be one of the nicest guys I have ever met in this wild and wacky business. You're an amazing father, a fantastic husband to the love of your life, Julie. And, John, I can't tell you how much it meant to me that you took the time to check into the Sports Lodge podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much.
Oh, it's great to be here, Roger, and uh, God bless you. Much luck to you. Same to you, my friend. There he is. That is John Fogarty. John, thank you so much for doing this. You bet, Roger. The Sports Lodge with Roger Lodge was brought to you by the Global Story Network.